times I would find myself with the opportunity to help my mom and dad out and to assist in the discipline of my younger brothers. I don't know if we have any older brothers and sisters in the house who maybe did that or know what that's like, but from time to time I would see things in my brother's lives when my parents weren't around and I would just be willing as a servant heart to step up and help. I'm a giver and um those times, sometimes people might say that in some of those occasions, my help was, quote unquote, aggressive. And what I mean by that is it was not uncommon for my brothers and me to degenerate into physical violence. How many of you have brothers and sisters and you fought physically growing up? You know, or maybe you do right now. You did even today, maybe. Well, this happened, unfortunately, and I'm not endorsing this or saying that I'm proud of it. I'm just, you know, in a moment of conscience telling you this is what happened. And when my brothers, my brothers are twins two and a half years younger than I am and frequently would gang up on me, the victim. And as such, I, I felt that it was an opportunity for them to learn not to do that when I would respond disproportionately. I, I would respond to what they had clearly instigated, being the peace lover that I am, I would not have instigated anything, but it was up to me to shut it down. And so I would respond in a way that would hopefully deter them from any future aggression. And a lot of times when I did so, they would begin weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth, not because they were actually hurt, mind you, but because they were trying to draw the attention of our parents. And when this would happen, as the older brother who was trying to help, I would say, shh, stop, you're okay, you're not hurt, you're not hurt, you're okay. How many of you know that dynamic? You, you've seen that played out? And sometimes it would work, a lot of times it didn't. And, and if it wasn't working, I would go, shh, shh you're okay, shh, don't stop, no, mom's going to hear you, shh, shut up, shut up. And if it wouldn't work at that point, I would offer the ultimate, ultimate act of desperation. I would say, shh, 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 look, hit me, hit me, go ahead, hit me back, it's okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, shh. Now, for those of you who laugh the laugh of recognition, you know what that dynamic is like, but with the benefit of 30 and 40 years of hindsight, I would love to tell you that that was the last time that I ever saw that dynamic played out in my own life, but unfortunately that has happened more than a few times since my brothers and I were fighting physically as kids growing up. As a matter of fact, there have been a lot of times in my life personally and privately when my conscience has cried out, when my conscience has spoken up and I've tried to shush my conscience, like I tried to shush 
my brothers, have you ever tried to shush your conscience? Like you're in the middle of something that if we're going to be totally candid, sometimes it's just fun. And your conscience go, hey, 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 Mac, Mac, this isn't what you were created for. You know, God's got a better way and you know that this is wrong. And I'm like, shh, 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 stop it, stop it, stop it. I'm having fun. This is okay. Just don't say anything. Somebody else hear you. Surely I'm not the only one. Y'all are looking at me like I'm alone in this. Like poor Pastor Mac. We've all been there. We know what that's like. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we started this series, Thrones, Royalty Redefined. And before I take another step, I want to say a special, special word of thanks to Alex Judd for his message last weekend and what he did, speaking into the life of our church and Alex not only preached on preparation as a lifestyle, but he is a great example of somebody that God is raising up in our next generation and doing incredible things through. But we talked about the fact that as a Christ follower, we are called into this relationship with God, and as such, God is preparing and building us in, up into a royal priesthood, the Bible says, such that because of Christ, not because of anything we've done on our own, but because of Jesus, we actually have, spiritually speaking, royal blood running through our veins. And the, the idea of this series is that we would kind of take that premise and that promise from the book of 1 Peter and use the life of David from the Old Testament as a paradigm, as a pattern to see what royalty redefined really looks like. Now, David is a fascinating character. You've probably heard of David and Goliath, and he killed the giant. And last week, as I said, Alex did an incredible job of talking about David's faithfulness as he was being prepared for the throne. And we know that David is referred to not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, more than a thousand years after he walked on earth as a human being, as a man after God's own heart. Now, David lived a big life. He killed Goliath. He was a poet and a musician. He was a warrior. He was the king of God's people. He was the architect of the temple that would be built in Jerusalem. He lived big, but when David messed up, man, David messed up big time. And if you were to look at the life of David, it might surprise you to know that he's referred to as a man after God's own heart. Here was a Man born into obscurity in a backwater town known as Bethlehem. He grew up to become king, but as king, he was guilty of vanity. He was guilty of adultery. He was guilty of murder. Over and over and over again, we see David mess up such that it might cause us to wonder, how could you call David a man after God's own heart? And I believe that the key to David's heart issue is revealed to us in the fact that David never messed up the same way twice. Now Saul, on the other hand, Saul was the original king of Israel that David was to succeed. Saul was somebody that we see repeatedly, repeatedly going to the well of sin, of greed, of pride, of insecurity, of disobedience to God's commands about worship, repeatedly this happened such that God ultimately took his hand of blessing off of Saul's life and said, I'm going to go find another king who's not even out of your household. And there is where David came into the picture. But it's 
in David's life. And specifically today, we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you've got a Bible, look at 1 Samuel 24. Maybe you have it on your phone. Because in 1 Samuel 24, we find David still in this kind of betwixt and between period of his life. He's been anointed. He's been chosen as the next king over Israel, but he hasn't yet assumed the throne. He hasn't yet become king over Israel. And so he's waiting for his day. He's waiting for his moment to arrive. But while he is waiting, Saul has decided that he will assassinate his successor. Saul has decided that David is such a threat to him personally. He's so consumed by envy and insecurity that he sets out on a mission to murder David. Now, this has taken form in a couple of places. A couple of times in his palace, the Bible says that Saul hurled a spear at David, and David got out of the way while the spear stuck in the wall, barely escaping death. But in 1 Samuel chapter 24, David has fled into the mountains outside of Jerusalem, the mountains and the desert area known as En Gedi. En Gedi is an area that we visited actually on our trip to Israel about a year and a half ago. And let me just tell you that if you're running from somebody, En Gedi is a great place to go. It is completely inhospitable. It is dry, arid, desert, mountainous. There are a few streams and a few green places, but by and large, it is straight up mountainous desert. And so David flees into the hills of En Gedi with about 600 men, but Saul decides to pursue David with the Bible says 3,000 elite soldiers of Israel. Saul gathers up 3,000 Navy SEALs and says, we're going out to take out David. And so he pursues David into the wilderness of En Gedi. But in 1 Samuel 24, I'll never forget this particular moment. I remember hearing about this when I was a small kid growing up in church. In 1 Samuel 24, the Bible tells us that Saul, in the midst of this pursuit with his 3,000 elite forces, decides he has to go potty. The Bible says he goes into a cave to relieve himself. Now, some of you may think, well, surely there's like a, a Hebrew code word that there's a spiritual implication. No, no, no. That's it. Now, we don't know if it's number one or number two, but he was going into the cave to relieve himself. And as it happens, it is the exact cave that David and his men are hiding further back in the deeper recesses of. And so Saul comes into this cave, kind of gets out of the view of his men and everybody else. He's private. He's, you know, appropriate. And David's men are behind him. And David's men are beside themselves. They start whispering into the ear of their king because they don't want to, you know, interrupt Saul. And they say, this is your moment. This God has delivered your enemy. He's trying to kill you. And yet here he is. You've got him with his pants down. That's not figurative. This is not a metaphor. Let's take him. This is the moment. And the Bible says that David creeps up from the back of the cave. He draws his sword. But rather than killing God's anointed king over Israel, because Saul's still king. Saul was still the one that God chose to be the original king over Israel. David takes that sword and he just cuts off a corner of Saul's royal robe. 
And you, you can almost see him like, you know, he, he cuts off the robe and he turns to the back of the cave. And, and his men are like, Well, Saul concludes his business, and he exits the cave. And when he exits the cave, we learn something critical about being a man or a woman or a student after God's own heart. Look at what the Bible says. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. Now, everybody around David was saying, kill him, knife him, do it. And David, all he did was cut off a little piece of his robe. Saul never even knew. But you see, when David cut off a corner of Saul's robe, David was undermining Saul's authority because only the king wore that robe. Nobody else, when Saul walked in the room, you knew who he was because of his attire, because of the robe that he wore, his cloak. And when David cut that off, he undermined Saul's authority that God had given to him. Now Saul had abused that authority, but it still remained true that God had given him that authority. And so it wasn't David's to undermine and so the Bible says he was conscience-stricken. Man, I know what that's like. I know what it feels like to be conscience-stricken. I've been conscience-stricken maybe as a dad. There, there have been times as a father when, when I've kind of overreacted to something that my kids have done. I've seen, you know, I've been like, what are you doing? And, and while it's happening, I'm going, man, you're pushing this too far. Pull back, pull up, pull up, pull up. But I'm like, no, I'm already into it. I, they need to know. There have been other times as a husband when, when I've maybe been less than sensitive. I think there was one time about 20 years ago. <laughs> and, and as the words are coming out of my mouth, I'm going, this is a bad idea. This is not going to end well for you. You're dumb. And they just keep having, am I the only one? The, you, you know what that's like. And, and, and you know, as you're saying it, I'm going to have to apologize. <sighs> and you're conscience stricken. I use that passage and that translation out of the New International Version very deliberately because I think it's the most accurate interpretation of the original Hebrew. It's conscience stricken. Some, some places say that David's heart was struck. But conscience, conscience for a man or a woman after God's own heart, for somebody who is living out royalty redefined, conscience is the heart of the heart. It's how we respond when our conscience cries out. Do we try to shush it like we do little brothers and sisters who are acting like they're hurt? Or do we actually listen? And I think, you know, conscience is a tough thing because we can act like it's no big deal a lot of times. We, we can say, ah, it's not that big a deal, and it's, I'm not as bad as that guy or that girl. I mean, I've never killed anybody this week. It's, you know, 
Not that big. I, I like what comedian Stephen Wright said. He said that conscience is actually, many times, conscience is evidence of a bad memory. That if we feel like we've got a clean conscience, it's because we can't remember what actually happened. <laughs> but I think it's important for us to understand biblically and practically speaking, day in and day out, what is conscience? And so let me just give you a working definition of what conscience really is. It is the merging of our integrity and God's authority. This is what David did. You see, David set a high bar for conscience. His men were saying, kill Saul, but he said, I shouldn't have even taken a piece of his cloak. You see, David surrendered and submitted his integrity to God's authority. This is what he was all about. This is what he was doing. And, and this is why there in that cave with his men egging him on and telling him to kill Saul, he was conscience stricken. And so I think for you and me, day in and day out, what does it look like to cultivate conscience, to have a, a conscience that God uses, a conscience that works, a conscience that is effective, so that we actually live the life God has created us and, and called us to live. And fortunately, we have examples from the life of David and the time that we've got left. I want to just talk about what that looks like. How do we actually cultivate conscience? Number one, pray for a responsive conscience. Pray for a responsive conscience. Not one that we shush and keep quiet and hopefully nobody else will hear it or see it, but actually go to God and say, God, give me a heart that responds. Give me a conscience that when, when you stir it, when your Holy Spirit starts to mix things up, that I actually respond to it. Let me ask you a question. How many of you here today like steak. Let me just see a show of hands. If you're a, if you're a red meat guy or gal, I am. I, I, I love it. I love it. I think that's what God intended. I think before there were cows, we were eating brontosaurus burgers. I think, I think I love me some red meat. And so consequently, I've spent years working on the grilling of the steak and the red meat. But somehow, until I was 48 years old, this year, I had never discovered the benefit and the blessing of searing the steak in a skillet before you put it on the charcoal grill the way God wants steak to be cooked. <laughs> now, I had always heard you need to sear the steak and, and make sure your grill is very hot, but I'm talking about heating up a skillet, a black iron, cast iron skillet, as hot as you can possibly get it, putting a little oil in the bottom of it, and then dropping that steak in there and let it just absolutely char the exterior or sear the exterior so that then when you put it on the grill and it begins to absorb that luscious smoke aroma and the angels begin to sing, because it is seared on the outside, it has developed kind of a, a crust on the outside, all of the juices remain inside the steak, and it cooks evenly throughout. 
Everything is spiritual. <laughs> but that picture of what happens when you sear a steak is exactly what happens to our conscience when we don't respond over time. Our conscience, the Bible says, become seared and it becomes crusted and burned over so that it's no longer sensitive. And this is why we pray continuously and constantly, God, give me a responsive heart. Give me a responsive conscience. Look at what David said in Psalms. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. God, point out anything in my life that offends you. You see, again, this is setting the bar very high. This is not what I think is right or wrong, but what God says is right or wrong. Any anxious thought that is in me. Isn't it true that most of our repetitive sin, most of our behavioral patterns that are destructive and sinful, they're really born out of fear. They're born out of anxiety. He says, test me and know any anxious thoughts within me. This is exactly what happened to Adam and Eve at the original sin in the Garden of Eden. Satan approached Eve and he said, now wait a minute. Did God really say that you die if you eat from that one? Listen, you're missing out, Evie. Let me help a sister out. If you were to do what God said don't do, you all of a sudden would know everything that God knows. You would be like a God yourself. And Eve went, oh, snap. Adam, look what we're missing. It's that anxiety. It's that fear. It's that... It's that prayer that goes to God and says, God, search me and know any way within me that offends me and clean it out. Give me a responsive conscience and heart. But it's not just praying that prayer. David goes on. If, if you were to say, I don't know where to start reading the Bible, I would tell you go to just about the very middle. Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. The Bible's made up of 66 books, supernaturally composed, supernaturally compiled, the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. But Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the whole shooting match, and the whole chapter extols the virtue and the blessing of the Word of God. The fact that when God gives us his word, his commandments, his decrees, he is expressing his love for us. And so, yes, we absolutely pray for a responsive heart. But David would say, you also make sure that you feed your conscience scripture. Feed your conscience scripture. Make sure that you're taking that in. Think about the red meat, the steak. Listen, one of the reasons I love steak is because it helps to build these shoulders and these pecs. I mean, this doesn't happen just accidentally. My body metabolizes that protein and takes it in. By the same token, when you take in Scripture, your conscience, my conscience, my heart, metabolizes the Word of God spiritually and begins to use it as a part of everything. 
every decision I make, every choice, every act, every word gets run through and filtered through the saying of God's word. This is what the Bible says in Psalm 119. Your commandments give me understanding. You want to be wise? You want to understand how life works? Go to God's word. No wonder I hate every false way of life. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Does that sound like a burden to you? Does that sound like something that God's given just because he's a cosmic scorekeeper? He's given us his word as a gift. This is why we have Bible studies, not just so you can know more stuff, but so we can live more fully so that our conscience is fed the word of God, a steady diet of what works. What does he say there? I hate every false way of life. Any way that contradicts scripture is a lie. It's falsehood. You don't build your life on a falsehood. You don't send your kids to school and say, listen, they're going to tell you that two plus two equals four, but I want you to know in our house, two plus two equals seven. And that's how we're going to live, okay? You don't do that. That's crazy. You tell your kids the truth. God has told us, his kids, the truth because he loves us, because he's given us this gift of Scripture. But there was one more thing that David did throughout his life that cultivated his conscience. One more example that he, he gives us, and that is the fact that David listened to the people around him. David was a man, yes, after God's own heart, but David was a man who reinforced his conscience with real accountability. You reinforce your conscience with the people you surround yourself with. Listen, the greatest accountability I have in my life is my wife, Julie, after the Holy Spirit of God. Julie is the one that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt is going to tell me not only what I want to hear, but what I need to hear. And I disregard that accountability at my own peril. Somebody help me preach. I'm just saying, I know she's going to shoot me straight. And if she says something to me that is lovingly confrontational, then I know that she's prayed about it. I know that she's thought about it. I know that she's weighed her words. And there are other people in my life who will do the same thing. David had this. Now, I'm going to jump a little bit ahead of the story. Most of you know that David sinned greatly with Bathsheba. He, he committed adultery with a woman that he was walking around on the roof of his palace, and he saw a beautiful woman bathing on one of the rooftops down below him. And he went, whoa, she needs to come to the palace. And he committed adultery, and there was this horrific sin in his life. And we're going to get it. I don't want to preempt next week too much because we're going to really get into that story and see what God has to show us through that. But what is fascinating to me is the way David responded to the accountability that God placed in his life. The Bible says in 2 Samuel that the prophet Nathan came to David and confronted him over this sin. And he confronted him with a story. And in this story, he told about a, a gross injustice that was committed. A wealthy man had a guest show up, and he had flocks galore, but his neighbor had just one little ewe lamb. And rather than sacrifice one of his myriad flocks to feed his guest, 
he went and took the ewe lamb from his neighbor and used that to feed his guest that night for dinner. And David was outraged. He said, this man should be killed. And Nathan stopped right there dead in his tracks. And he said, David, you're that man. When you took your neighbor's wife, Bathsheba, and then had him killed, that's exactly what you did. And look at how David responded. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. This is the king talking. At this point, he's killed his ten thousands. He's living in an opulent palace. He's been successful in battle and war and peace. And yet David, in this moment, responded to the accountability in his life. And he said, I've sinned. You see, this is the difference between Saul and David. This is the difference between a man playing follower of God and a man who was truly after God's own heart. When David messed up, he fessed up. He, he owned it. He just said, I am wrong. I have sinned against the Lord. And he was reinforcing his conscience with real accountability in his life. You see, conscience is one of those things that, like I said, we, we can shush it, we can quiet it down, but we do so at our own peril. And I would, I would slightly disagree with the comedian Stephen Wright. I, I don't think a clear conscience is necessarily evidence of a bad memory. I believe that because of Jesus Christ, a clear conscience is an absolute certainty in the life of anyone who would choose to follow Christ. Jesus said that his forgiveness is complete. So when I confess a sin, when you confess a sin to Christ... Your conscience is clean. Nobody's standards are higher than God's. And that's really important when we think about the difficulty sometimes we have forgiving ourselves. To remember that our standards are not higher than God's. Matter of fact, the book of Hebrews makes a promise and a guarantee to us. It says, since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, that's Jesus, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. See, we don't earn God's favor because we do enough good things to erase our conscience, to erase our record but it is rather because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross in our place for us that we are forgiven completely. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, the Bible says, is sufficient for the forgiveness of your sins. And because of that, the Bible tells us that God remembers our sin no more. Isn't that great? Wouldn't it be great if our spouses remembered our sin no more? <laughs> I'm just saying. If, if we were to understand what it meant to live in the freedom of a 
completely clean conscience. Not only does God not remember our sin, he removes it from us. The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. You you don't get any farther away than that. This is what God promises in Jesus. This is what a relationship with Christ provides. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. Because it's a moment that's too important to just let it slide by. And I want to ask you to not be moving around or stirring for any reason because this is sacred ground that we're on, folks. But if you're here today and you've never stepped into a relationship with Christ, I believe that God is inviting you into it right now. Again, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how guilty you may feel, that because of Jesus, your conscience can be clean. Because you are forgiven by the one who has the authority to forgive. And it begins in a relationship. It is sustained in a relationship. And it continues eternally in a relationship. It's a relationship that Jesus offers that we respond to. So if you're here today and you've never responded to that offer, why not right now just pray right where you're sitting. Just silently talk to God. Just silently say in your own words something like this. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I confess my sin to you, holding nothing back. And I claim your forgiveness and a clean conscience because of you, Jesus. I give you my life. I surrender my integrity to your authority. And I will follow you from this moment forward. In Jesus' name. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for a moment, a sacred moment. If that was your prayer and you meant it, this is the greatest moment of your life. And it's a moment that needs to be marked. So as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed in reverence. Those of you who just prayed that prayer, I want to ask you if you would raise your hand and just hold it up as you mark this moment. And as you hold that hand up, I want you to make sure that you know this is real. This is you and God doing real work. And so I want to encourage you to make sure that you make just a brief but personal connection today because that's what this is all about. It's about connecting with God, connecting through the church, 
with God, with other people who have done the same thing. And so before you leave today, I want to just ask you, if you will, take the program that you got when you came in, fill out the info card that's there, and then just say, I'm indicate I'm giving my life to Christ today. And before you leave, tear that off and hand it to one of our ushers or maybe just at the blue awning out front that says LHC on it, you can just make a brief personal connection. Just say, hey, I want to give you this. Today was my day. No fanfare, no marching band, just a personal connection because we want to be a family of faith for you, a safe place to grow and develop this relationship with Christ. And so we celebrate that with you. As you put your hands down, as a church family, we like to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home. That's what it's all about. That's why we do what we do.